0: And welcome to the one and only Necromancers of the Northwest Podcast, the only gaming podcast that is both region specific and spell school specialized. Today we're going to be talking about villains and how to make good ones, but that's a little bit later. Right now, we're going to talk about witches. That's right, witches. In addition to being an excellent villain archetype, the witch is also one of the most popular player classes to come out of Paizo's Advanced Player's Guide. It was a class that resonated well, fit a flavor niche, that had previously been largely ignored by the game, and was fun to play. I'm sure the sexy witch art in the book didn't hurt either. In any event, whatever the reason, the witch class has been the subject of a number of third-party supplements designed to expand and improve upon it, including one, a Necromancer's Grimoire, Secrets of the Witch, written by us here at Necromancers of the Northwest. But that's not the witch supplement I want to talk to you about today. Instead... I'm going to review a couple of witch-themed books written by other companies. I'll admit up front that having written a witch book myself, I'm a little biased on the subject. In order to combat this, I've decided that for every negative thing I say about either book, I'm going to find something nice to say about it as well. The first book I'm reviewing is Advanced Feats: The Witch's Brew, a 14-page book published by a company called Open Design. Apparently Solo by Siegfried Trent, a close look at the book's credits, will reveal that it was apparently published by Wolfgang Bauer, who was involved in Dungeon & Dragon magazines, as well as a number of 2nd edition products under TSR. This lends a little bit of credibility to the otherwise heavy-handed introduction, stressing the editor's experience at crafting and editing feats for playability, accuracy, and balance, and the strict screening such feats go through under a panel of experts. Unfortunately, I fear that this may be a case where their unsolicited protestations only serve to demonstrate a guilty conscience, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The authors of the book are very adamant that it is more than just a list of feats, stressing the inclusion of a class breakdown and various character builds in order to provide insight and expertise in creating an interesting and fun witch character. With that acknowledgement out of the way, the book's main attraction by far are the 30 feats that it contains. Note that I say feats and not new feats, as the authors are quite upfront about the fact that many of these feats are drawn from The Netbook of Feats, an OGL publication of D20 Feats. They say that each such feat has been carefully reworked to be fully compatible with the Pathfinder system. It's also worth noting that the book does contain some brand new feats, it's just not clear how many. After the introduction, the book moved on to a section entitled Examining the Witch, which discusses the ins and outs of the witch class. Sadly, this is where I start needing to say unkind things about the book. The promised insight and expertise here seems to amount to commentary like, With full spellcasting and a familiar that can learn spells, witches are a lot like wizards. And witches should think twice before sending their familiars into combat. In short, this section is highly unlikely to tell you anything you didn't already know, or give you any kind of insight into anything. On the plus side, however, it's less than a full page long, and could theoretically be useful to very, very new players who might not yet have figured out that, for example, witches who are caught by surprise or can't cast their spells for some reason will be incredibly vulnerable. Once the examination is over, the book gets down to the business of presenting its 30 feats, most of which are accompanied by a short commentary where the author describes why he feels the feat is fun, cool, or interesting, or else defends it from anticipated criticisms, which, in a few cases, proves interesting and informative, though for the majority of feats, it is largely a waste. Uh, Despite the book's witch theme, only four of the 30 feats are witch-specific, with the others being useful to witches and or thematically appropriate but also available to to members of other classes, greatly increasing the book's utility. Some, like Ability Damage Resistance, Robust Health, and Soulmate, are potentially useful for any character, but most of the feats in the book are only of interest to dedicated spellcasters. Two major themes run through the feats. The first is familiars. No less than 12 of the 30 feats in the book are related to familiars in some way. Of these, my favorite is by far the extra familiar feat, mostly because our own witch book did something similar. These feats have a wide range in power level from the incredibly unappealing Familiar Range Extension, which extends the range of empathic communication with a familiar out to 100 miles and does nothing else, to such heavy hitters as Hexing Familiar, which allows your familiar to use your hexes, freeing up your own actions to cast powerful spells, or Linked Resistance, which allows you to gain limited access to your familiar's spell resistance. The latter may not be as unbalanced as it sounds. Familiars tend to have low spell resistance, and it requires a standard action by the witch to gain the resistance for 1-4 rounds. On the other hand, if your familiar can cast a hex on your behalf that round, it suddenly becomes much more palatable. Of course, the ability to cast a spell and use a hex on the same turn is far more potent, and has a lot of game-breaking potential, as does the feat that allows your familiar to maintain concentration on your spells for you, freeing up a standard action you can use to do more deadly things. While there are some game-breaking feats, a bad thing, most of the feats are quite balanced, a good thing. A few of them don't look like it, though, and you may find your GM rankling at the idea of a feat that gives your familiar access to each and every feat that you have access to that it qualifies for, for example, or a feat that grants you a second witch patron, effectively learning nine new spells, many of which won't be on your spell list. Similarly, dealing damage to the caster whenever you successfully counter a spell might make for some frustrating mage duels, but it's not nearly as threatening to the game's overall balance as as one's initial gut feeling would lead one to believe. Speaking of counterspells, another somewhat subtler theme in the book is counterspells. Only four of the spells in the book deal with counterspell magic, but it's enough that the theme is clearly felt. It's admirable that they want to make counterspells more appealing, and it's true that the commentary in the book points out that counterspells are something that almost never come up in most games. I'm not sure if any of the feats in this book are as likely to accomplish making those a more an uh, important part of your game as the Parry Spell feat from the Advanced Player's Guide, which the author was clearly familiar with, and which seems to have inspired the usurp, usurp Spell feat, at least, from this book, but Dispel Specialists will definitely find some useful tools here. The rest of the feats are more or less standalone, and some of them are gems, while others aren't really. I really loved Delay Spell, a magic feat which allows you to delay other spells in a f- fashion similar to Delayed Blast Fireball and seems like it should have been included in a core rulebook long ago. At the same time, though, I could really have done without discriminating spell, a metamagic feat which allows you to exclude a specific creature type as targets in an area spell, or only include members of that type instead. Not only is that an unexciting option that will rarely be fully usable and is in any case far more expensive than it's worth, but the rules text is confusing and poorly written, saying that it must be a specific race or creature type, and then using White Dragon as an example of something that could be chosen. Uh, Some of the other great feats include Expert Healing, which allows you to use the Heal Skill to recover small amounts of hit points, making it potentially worthwhile skill and finally allowing it to do what it should have always done. It's also hard to argue with the coolness of infer spell, which allows witches and wizards to learn spells from wands and similar magic items in a manner similar to learning them from spellbooks or scrolls. At the same time though, feats like Signature Focus, which lets you ignore costly material components of up to a whopping 500 GP at 20th level, by crafting a focus that costs 250 GP, woohoo, and Seduction, a feat which uses vague and poorly defined rules to grant a bonus on bluff and diplomacy to sexually compatible characters, and further grants a whopping plus two bonus to the DC of all charm spells you cast, regardless of the target, make the feats in this book very much hit or miss. Once the feats are over and done with, the last three pages of the book cover character builds for the witch. At first I assumed that this was a funny way of saying archetypes or alternate class features, But instead, it's a list of what feats, hexes, and spells you should take at which levels in order to be a specific kind of witch. They list, for example, the Arch Witch, a counterspell specialist, the White Witch, a good witch specialized on healing and subduing rather than killing, and the Wicked Witch, which seems to be kind of all over the place. A few paragraphs are given about each, which discuss what the build is and why you might want to use it, and then explains the reasoning behind a number of the selections given. If you need a character in a hurry, and don't have time to pick feats and hexes, or if you're just incredibly indecisive, you might gain some benefit from these three pages, otherwise they're pretty much just wasted words. I'd really like to say that Advanced Feats The Witch's Brew is a good product and worth purchasing. It's certainly true that players with an existing witch character will probably find something fun that they can take right away, but most likely you'll never use more than three or four feats from the book, and you certainly won't use any of the other sections. With that in mind, the price of $3.99, a bit steep for a 14-page book in any case, seems just a bit too much for my taste. But that's not the only witch book I'm reviewing today. The other, Advanced Options, Witches' Hexes by Super Genius Games, forms the other. A uh, thin volume at 7 pages, less between cover, credits, and the OGL text. The book nonetheless boasts 29 new hexes for the Pathfinder Witch, and, as the introduction gleefully states, this more than doubles the number provided in the Advanced Player's Guide. The first page, in addition to the cover, contains an introduction that talks about the popularity of witches in various media, and celebrating the witch class as being able to fill a flavor niche not filled by sorcerers and wizards. The book then jumps quickly into the action, listing off hexes. One of the larger families of hexes in the book, by which I mean hexes that do a relatively similar thing, are the various hexes that allow the witch to perform combat maneuvers at a range. Each maneuver has a separate hex, so a witch must take Bungle, for example, to disarm, or she must take em- Entropy to Sunder, and so on and so forth. Each of these allows the ability to be used in- limitlessly at a range of 30 feet, and with the Witch's full level and intelligence bonuses is effective effective CMD- CMB. Sorry. In general, this makes the Witch better at her chosen combat maneuver than a fighter, as the base attack component will be the same, but her intelligence is likely to be higher than his strength, and more importantly, she can do so from a range, protecting her from any attempt at retaliation. The Witch also generally avoids any drawback this way, such as a chance to become tripped while tripping, or gaining the grappling, grappled condition while grappling. A side note about that hex, called Gremlin. It doesn't give any information on the witch's CMD for this check, making it unclear whether it uses her original CMD, or her witch level plus intelligence modifier plus dexterity modifier plus 10, or perhaps uses her wisdom instead of dexterity, or if it simply cannot be opposed, or what exactly was intended there. Um, That overall is definitely a bad thing, so now I need to say a good thing about the book. Well, it's cheap. At only 96 cents, it's barely more than 3 cents per hex. Moving on. The book also contains a lot of hexes that have cool, flavorful ideas. For example, the Entropy Hex I mentioned above allows you to magically wither and destroy objects, or Hobble, which, according to the description, allows you to temporarily lame your foe. They have a kiss of death and a kiss that alters memories, and that's certainly evocative. The Scuttle Hex talks about moving in unsettling positions and evokes the imagery of moving like a crab or insect. Whale lets you loose a terrible screech and drive back your foe. This would all be much more exciting if they had been backed up by interesting mechanics. The entropy hex doesn't do enough damage to really threaten magic weapons, and more to the point, can only be used on held items. It can't be used on unattended objects, and it can't be used on worn items, so it's basically just weapons, which sucks, because it would have been really fun to be able to use it to cut ropes, make apples explode, or what have you. Instead, it's worthless. Hobble is just a trip attempt, and Whale is similarly just a bullrush attempt. The two kisses work as you would expect, but feel like they would have been a lot cooler if they weren't restricted to helpless or willing targets. If, for example, you could hold the kiss as a charge and use it in a grapple, or as a melee touch attack, or something to that effect, it might be redeemable. Scuttling just grants you a bonus on climb checks. These sorts of wasted potential hexes are also bad, so I need something good to say again. Let's see. Almost every page has art on it. Unfortunately, the art is of so many different styles and of such questionable quality that I'm not sure it doesn't detract from the book rather than add to it, so I guess that's not exactly positive. Well, I really like the font that they used for the various section headings, for things like Grand Hex and Major Hex, etc. It, it looks really cool. Back to the hexes, most of what's left replicate spell-like abilities and aren't exactly a source of fun or excitement, while it might be useful to cast Sanctuary, Rage, Dark Vision, a notably weaker version of Darkness, Dancing Lights, Lesser Planar Ally, Goodberry, Summon Swarm, Modify Memory, Restoration, Sympathy, and Shape Change as hexes. Typically uh, once per target per day, but with other restrictions in some cases, it doesn't make for the most fascinating reading. Which brings me back to a positive thing. At a mere 540 kilobytes, you'll be able to download this PDF very quickly, and once you do, it won't take up that much space on your hard drive. And of course we have the oddball hexes. Uh, For example, one that makes your hair become animated and turns it into a natural attack that uses your intelligence score instead of strength to determine damage for no reason that makes any sense. The upside? The the fact that this silly hex is stupidly powerful for a class feature of its sort is mitigated by the fact that no witch will ever want to fight in melee combat. In fact, the whole book seems to radiate a sense that the authors weren't intimately familiar with the rules of the game. Sometimes it's the little things, the lack of CMD for the gremlin hex, or specifying that the witch's hair natural attack is one that she's proficient with, and that she can use it while her hands are full. But sometimes it's a bit more pronounced, such as when the infestation hex specifies that it functions like summon swarm, except for the duration, the choice of swarm, and the fact that the witch has complete control of the swarm, making it basically nothing like summon swarm. Further, it grants the swarm a bonus on attack rolls, which swarms don't make. There are numerous other examples. And that's bad. Which, of course, means something good. One good hex is Doomgaze. Or at least, Doomgaze was a good hex when it was printed as Evil Eye in the advanced player's guide. The two hexes are word for word identical, except that Evil Eye increases its penalty to minus four at eighth level, whereas Doomgaze does not, instead increasing the penalty to a ridiculous minus eight at sixteenth level. Eventually, though, the hexes run out, and that leaves you with about half a page of feats, four in all, which are tacked onto the end, like a sort of bonus. Two of these are alright. Enlarge Hex and Quicken Hex allow the witch to effectively apply the Metamagic feats and large Spell and Quicken Spell, respectively, to any hex a certain number of times per day. Hex Expertise is actually somewhat interesting from a design perspective, if incredibly limited from a player perspective, allowing you to apply a hex that can only be used once per creature per day to the same creature up to two times each day. Finally, Hex Focus acts like Ability Focus, but for a single hex. I'm honestly not sure whether the feat Ability Focus would normally apply to all of a witch's hexes, or just one for each time she took Ability Focus, but either way there's no reason for this feat to exist. And that probably means I'm going to need something else nice to say about the book now. You may have noticed that I've been struggling for a bit with this, so I'm going to settle in this case for I'm done with it. For all that though, it's not the worst book in the world. DMs and players with any amount of experience or comfort with the system should be able to work out all the kinks caused by oversight on the designer's part. Some of the hexes are actually fun, and with 30 of them in there, it's a good bet that if you pick it up you'll find something you can get excited about giving to your existing witch character. At 96 cents, You're not out that much if you don't like it. That said, I can't help but point out that for $249, less than the cost of the first book, and only a little more than the cost of the second, you can get a Necromancer's Grimoire, Secrets of the Witch, which has over 40 pages, more than both books combined, contains 19 feats, 9 hexes, 12 alternate familiar abilities, 30 spells, and a class designed to let you play as a green hag. I'm obviously biased, and in fact make money off of each purchase of Secrets of the Witch, but if you want consumer advice, and you're in the market for a witch-related product, I think it will give you the most bang for your buck. In fairness, both of the books here are more likely to contain a feat or hex that you will immediately be able to use with an existing witch. So, if you just want a couple more options, you might pick up advanced options, witches hexes, Uh, but if you're planning on building a witch character soon or just want a wealth of cool options for witches, I'm not sure how much I can recommend either of these books. Now that we've finished that section, it's time for us to move on to Best Beasts, where we're going to be talking about uh, whether or not today, specifically the Medusa, is a very cool monster. And for that, I'm going to go ahead and hand you over to Josh.
1: Alright, so the Medusa. It's a real classic. These snake-haired monsters hail from ancient Greece, and were were inspiring dread into folks long before the gothic romances brought undead into the limelight. Unlike vampires and werewolves, which have been familiarized, humanized, and trivialized to no end, to the point where they've lost almost all of their monsterishness, the Medusa still has all of her monster clout. Well, I going to set the stage, you approach a seemingly beautiful and inviting woman who casts her features under a veil. You come close, allured by her charm. And as she peels back the veil, her features are wicked, her hair is writhing snakes, and before you can do more than scream, her dire gaze meets you, turning you into stone. The Medusa was so awe-inspiring that she was reincarnated as an entire race of beings, assuming many and various forms throughout fantasy media. Yet despite this repetition, the Medusa doesn't just get old like all those other monsters every time you see one you go oh hey cool medusa that's not something you see every day um and furthermore in regards to uh to D and other tabletop role playing games the medusa manages to stand out amongst a host of creatures which effectively do the same thing in turning you to stone when they look at you uh unlike the basilisk the cockatrice those weird bull like gorgon things uh, they just don't capture the, Im- the imagination the same way. I mean, you can't talk to a basilisk. You can talk to a Medusa. And that's cool. Uh, and no one's gonna get allured by one of those metal bulls. It's just not gonna happen. Uh, finally, I've been given to understand that if you lop off the head of a Medusa, you get a free Pegasus. It just sort of appears. They're like two-for-one monsters. So plainly, Medusas are cool, and
0: I don't even know why we're arguing about this. Well, you see, the problem with Medusas is that they don't make any sense, and more recent portrayals of them only make them more cluttered and confused. The idea of a woman so ugly that simply looking at her turns you to stone, well, even in a world of wizards and dragons, that's still a bit hard to believe. I've seen plenty of hideous people in my time, men and women alike, and I've never even gotten a rash from it, let alone a full-on petrification. Besides, if it was just ugliness that were the issue, a few tankards of ale would render the average adventurer immune. And being petrified by their own reflection? What happens when they need to drink of water from the stream? But in modern times, there has been a trend to try and make the medusas attractive. This is something I will never understand. The myths are clear. They're so ugly they turn you to stone. As tempting as it is to make fun- puns about beauty turning men to stone, the point is that a sexy medusa is almost like an oxy- oxymoron. Or to the point Medusas traditionally have snakes for hair, and it's not uncommon for them to have scales, reptilian eyes, and in extreme cases, even long tails instead of legs. To each his own, I suppose. Even if you accept the premise of the Medusa, there still isn't that much that's cool about them. You can't exactly talk that much with a Medusa unless you plan to do so blindfolded, and that requires a lot more trust than I would afford any snake. And as monsters, well, Medusa lovers will tell you that those scenes where the Medusa and hero stalk each other through a hall of pillars are cool but a smart adventuring party would just fill the place with fireballs and listen for the screams. So, what's our ultimate verdict?
1: Are Medusas cool? Well, I think Medusas are cool when you use them appropriately. For example, a Medusa does make a cool crime boss, or syndicate head, or tortured artist, uh, particularly if she's a sculptor. But in terms of a random encounter monster, I don't think so.
0: If you're looking for something that can petrify your players and you just want to put it in a cave or a temple or just sort of have it be there and go raw, I think you're better off with the Basilisk or the Gorgon. But what he says has a point. Medusas that are, that are able to exist in society and have some sort of personality and talk to, that's definitely something that could be cool. And with that out of the way, uh, we're going to go ahead and talk about Move on to optimal options where every week we talk a little bit about some aspect of the game that may be overlooked and generally give you an option some advice on pimping out your character and making them a little more effective whether they be an npc a pc or even a monster Uh, i'll go ahead and start today uh i'm going to talk a little bit about illusory wall At first glance, this seems more like the kind of spell designed to hinder adventurers than help them, and it's true that in most cases, all you'll want an illusory wall for is to hide a pit trap or conceal a secret door. Clever mages, however, will find other uses for the spell. For one, the spell does nothing to block sound, and so if placed properly, in an inn room or a guest room in the caster's home, or somewhere else that the caster might want to spy, it can create a perfect hiding spot for eavesdropping. Since the caster can also see through the wall, though no one else can, it can be used to observe as well, without risk of being seen. Along similar lines, this spell can turn an alcove in the wizard's bedchamber into a sort of last option panic room, so that if the wizard is awakened by the sounds of orcs banging down his door, he has a better hiding place than behind the curtains or under the bed. Illusory walls can also be used in combat, at least if you don't mind leaving permanent illusions everywhere you go. Because you can see through it and your opponents can't, it's a great way to give yourself concealment and block line of sight while still being able to attack your foes. In fact, if you're clever, there's no particular reason you couldn't make it look like a wall of ice, or a wall of iron, possibly causing your opponents to believe your defenses are notably more substantial than they really are. Of course, if your opponents figure it out, and decide to go through the wall and attack you from the other side, you might wish you'd had something a bit more substantial. If you'll have the opportunity to prepare the battleground ahead of time, illusory walls become much more valuable. Cover a deep pit trap with an illusory wall, and then put another illusory wall, this one vertical, on your end end of the pit trap. When your foe sees arrows or spells flying from behind the wall, he'll charge right into a pit trap. Or just set the illusory wall a few feet in front of the pit trap. No one will expect an illusory wall on the floor of this side of the trap. Uh, Illusory walls can be used in more mundane ways as well. Need to mark the edges of your property for whatever reason? You could take the time and effort to build a real wall, and perhaps you will in time. But here's a quick way to get it done. For that matter, want a chance to see what your tower will look like before you build it? Done. I don't see any particular reason you couldn't position an illusory wall as a floor that was just a fraction above the actual floor, allowing you to cheaply and easily make your simple stone appear to be expensive marble, or better. And of course, a wizard or con artist could always use it to sell a fortress that's nothing but air. As one of the few spells that can be cast in a standard action and whose effect is both permanent and free, illusory wall does a lot more than it seems to at first and is definitely worth a second look.
1: All right, so this week I wanted to talk to you guys about ambushes, uh, particularly ambushes without using a lot of fancy spells, like Illusory Wall. Uh, though an Illusory Wall is a fantastic way to set one up, I should say. Uh, so this has led me to, uh, to the conclusion that in order to plan an effective ambush without relying heavily on spell casting or super convenient terrain features, you're really going to need to make use of some good poisons. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the best ways to use some poisons in an ambush. Naturally, the most obvious thing you're going to do is coat your arrows with a couple of decent injury poison from behind arrow slits or something similar uh, to end the fight as quickly as possible or seriously reduce their numbers. For this, I'd recommend something like Drown Knockout Poison because it effectively cripples your enemies. It's super cheap. It's available early, so you can really start playing with it right away. Uh, and uh, while the DC is low, it is, uh, I, I would recommend speaking with your GM about perhaps... A more expensive version of the poison with a higher DC, uh, so you could set that up. Now, if you're really a more clever player and you want to set up a uh, an ambush that uh, that really lulls your opponents into a false sense of security, consider luring your foes into a tower or similar structure, and coating a ladder or something they're going to need to climb up to reach you. Preferably, something that's going to be about a minute. Coat it in oil of uh, or coat it in tears of death is a uh, somewhat more expensive poison, uh, ranking in at 6,500 GP per dose. But it's a contact that will do uh, con damage and paralyze your foes uh, with a reasonably high DC, and that will effectively end the fight before it starts. Um, finally, if you're really looking to uh, to get the drop on somebody who's not necessarily going to be hostile to you at the time, try poisoning their food with something like Oil of tagget uh, again, this is going to knock them out, and once they're down for the count, you can either just out and out kill them, or you can tie them up, or whatever you want. And at a mere 90 GP a dose, uh, there's no reason you shouldn't keep a full pantry of this stuff around for just such an occasion. Uh, Alright, I think we're going to go ahead and move on now to talk about our, uh, our feature for the day, which is all about making a fantastic villain. Uh, we're going to cover a lot of topics here, so I'll hand you over to Alex to get, get you started.
0: Alrighty, so the first thing that you want to consider when you're trying to come up with a new villain i think is probably the type of villain that you're you're going to be creating and there's a number of different aspects to to types of villains uh so i thought i'd take a moment to to talk a little bit about some of the, the different aspects of your villain and some some sort of archetypes that pop up there so the first thing you might want to consider is, what is your villain's motive? This is one of the more important aspects of the villain, his motive, uh, because it's it's what drives him to do what he does, and, and ultimately it's the, the root of his villainy, and it's, it's something that you're definitely going to want to put a little bit of effort into, or at the very least determine what it is, so that you can make sure that your villain makes sense as a whole. Um, there's a number of different motivations that can be ascribed to villains. Some of the more common ones are, for example, the sympathetic villain this villain does evil things for a good or at least relatable reason. Perhaps he wants vengeance for some crime that was done to him, or perhaps he's doing what he is to stop a greater evil from coming to pass, which the PCs may or may not know about. Um, Alternatively, maybe they they are aware of it, but they simply disagree with him about his methods. Uh, Perhaps in order to stop a great war, he's performing some sort of horrible genocide, that sort of thing. Um, Also popular is the pragmatic villain, uh, this villain does evil things in order to benefit himself. He kills those whose death he benefits from, or who pose a threat to his operations. He steals from whoever he can get away from stealing from. He doesn't really do anything that he doesn't gain from it. Somehow, though, he's uh, he's a cautious villain, and really, he's not he's not a villain because he wants to be evil. He's a villain because it's easier and more profitable than not being a villain. Um, the next, uh, the next, probably. Uh, best villain type, or sometimes better in, in some cases, depending on what it is you're going for, is the depraved villain. Uh, this villain does evil things because he finds them exciting. He murders because it makes him feel powerful. He probably rapes and defiles. He takes sadistic pleasure in causing others pain. Um, this is your your serial murderer, your uh, your barbarian, your lusty barbarian that sort of that sort of thing. Uh it also bears mention the cartoonish villain, uh the villain who does evil things because he enjoys the very idea of being evil. Uh he twirls his mustache and flourishes his cape and that sort of thing. Uh basically anyone you remember from any of your childhood Saturday morning cartoons, uh any of those villains, they'll they'll pretty much all fall into that category. Uh, generally not my favorite kind of villain, but some people really like them. Um, there is also uh another type of villain that's that's important is sort of falls somewhere in between the, the depraved and the cartoonish I guess is and that is the uh the villain who really is an embodiment of evil, uh sort of like um like an otherworldly force, like a demon or a devil. Um Sauron from The Lord of the Rings is arguably a good example for that. Um, these sorts of things and obviously in all of these cases there are various shades in between you might have a villain who uh, you know does who, who's pragmatic about his thing maybe he's a crime boss but maybe he also has sympathetic reasons for why he is a crime boss or maybe he has sympathetic reasons for why he's going up against that other gang often there's a lot of blurred lines between the depraved and the cartoonish or the depraved and the sympathetic That that sort of thing um, another thing to consider is how, on, how hands-on is your villain going to be? Is he a background schemer who rarely, if ever, uh, meets anyone face-to-face, is always one step ahead of the heroes and working through proxies? Um, defeating these sorts of villains isn't about combat, but about finding a way to actually get a chance to fight him often. Um, at the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a sort of a deadly warrior, incredibly hands-on, always happy for a fight. This sort of villain doesn't bother with elaborate plans, instead putting his faith in his own combat ability, whether magical or mundane. Uh, and then obviously there's, there's a whole spectrum of room in between. Another important thing to consider is, is what is your villain's purpose in the story going to be? Not all of your villains are supposed to be big, bad, end-of-the-game villains. Obviously some of them are. And they're usually the ones that you want to spend the most time focusing on. But sometimes it's important to have villains of other types as well. Uh, for example, you might want a comic villain. These are generally hopelessly inept and effortlessly pathetic. Uh, villains of, of that type, they tend to serve to give comic relief, make your players feel big and powerful, and generally contrast more serious villains. These are the ones where uh, your your party, you know, when they show up, they laugh or... Perhaps they grow. No, oh, no, not you guys again. But deep down, these are the villains that your party—they they really love. They don't hate them. Um, similarly, you've got mid-level villains. Uh, sometimes you only want a villain around long enough to seem impressive, so that you can replace him with a much more powerful and impressive villain. He's like a warm-up act. He's there to—he's uh, there to get tossed out, uh, and and make the other villain look really impressive by the fact that he can just just toss him aside. Um, Sometimes, obviously, there is the, uh, the Big Bad Evil Guy, or BBEG, um, villain. Uh, this is the one that you probably think of when you hear the word villain. They're the ones that must be taken out at the end of a long, climactic battle. They're, they're the ones at the end of the game. Uh, and there's also non-confrontational villains as well, surprising as that seems. Uh, sometimes the reason you want a villain in your game is because you want the PCs to work with them. Perhaps you're exploring the theme of good people doing bad things for good reasons... Or maybe your party just aren't very nice people and they don't really care if they're working with mass murderers. They just want to get the job done. Uh, in fact, sometimes it can be really fun to uh, to take a confrontational villain and make your players team up with him to uh, to go and, and defeat some greater evil. Um, and then, of course, there's, you know, what are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? You know, get an idea of what what your villain is going to be about. Is he... Say he is a hands-on villain. Is he hands-on by, uh, by using his strength of arms? Or is he stra- hands-on by his magic? Or is he a stealthy assassin? Perhaps something outside the three uh, Morrowind stereotypes. That sort of thing. Um, Josh, did you have any other thoughts on that sort of thing? Yeah.
1: Okay, so when you're setting up your villain, it's important to look at a lot of different factors. Naturally, his motivation is a very critical part of of what your villain's going to be like, uh, and in addition to making sure he has a uh, a general type of motivation, you need to uh, you need to very carefully fine tune the details on all those things so that your villain can really come alive. And you want to make sure that his motivations can be communicated to the uh, to the players at some point so that those really get across to your audience. So you have a choice of either giving your villain a very obvious motivation or slowly uh, revealing his motivation to the group in order to sort of let them feel what the villain is going to be like. In some cases, it's going to be easier than others. For example, the big bad evil guy villain Alex was talking about earlier. You're going to have a lot of time to, you know, sort of showcase what all the little details, what he's feeling, and what he's about, and really who he is. But a a more mid-level villain, you just don't have the time a lot of the time, so you gotta make his uh, motivation more obvious. It's harder to give him an obscure motive because there's not going to be time to discover it. Uh, and then you should just try to avoid having guys whose motivations never come up. So a guy you've decided is sympathetic is good, even if you, uh, you never get out. But if your audience never finds out that he's doing things for what he thinks are good reasons, then you lose a lot of the value there. So it's really important that, uh, that people really get a good feel. For that kind of thing, uh, this is particularly important. Uh, I think when you're when you're looking for a villain who might be misguided, or or who isn't just going to be plain evil, it's obviously going to be less important than somebody with a more obvious motivation. You know, someone, uh, some one of those big bad evil forces who's clearly evil for evil's sake. Uh, so, uh, so moving on from motivation, uh, you got to look at a lot of the uh, the sort of things that villains can really do to uh to sort of get themselves out there in addition to just having motivations they need a lot of little details that really sort of sell them so you need to make sure that they have vibrant and enjoyable personalities stuff that communicates well we'll be talking about that a little bit more a little bit later when we go into role-playing villains but uh but it's it's very important that they have big memorable personalities or more subtle things, but they need to leave a mark because they're such an important part of any given story or villains and antagonists. And then you need to uh, to keep a couple of things in mind when you're trying to do something more complicated than have a uh, stand-up-and-we-fight-the-PCs villain, somebody who's going to be more hands-off or behind-the-scenes, you need to still be able to engage the PCs. With a villain like that, they still need to feel that they need to deal with that villain, and they still need to
0: be working on that sort of thing. That's true. Uh, one, one thing to consider with those sorts of behind-the-scenes villains is they uh, they really, you know, the ones that scheme a lot, it, it will take a certain amount of effort, and it may come more easily to some GMs than others, uh, to, to come up with a, a background scheme that, A, makes sense, and B is is complicated and subtle enough that your players are going to be able to to not just immediately see through it, and also hopefully is uh, is one that they'll eventually, once you want them to see what was going on, actually be able to figure out as well. There's nothing uh, nothing quite as worse like like Josh was talking about with uh, with villains whose motivations never comes up. It's also nothing as bad as a villain whose evil plan. Completely works, and the PCs have no idea that they've been com- that they've been duped. They hanged an innocent man, and the evil guy got free, or whatever. That's definitely not going to be a satisfactory ending for you. This is especially true uh, when you're coming
1: around with a villain who you want to keep more secret, like somebody who the PCs think is their friend. Uh, they really need the opportunity to be able to find out that uh, that something happened there, or you you lose all the the real fun that comes from having that subtle guy unless you're just really into torturing your pcs behind the scenes um but uh speaking of things that uh that villains need to have and planning uh when when your villain has an evil scheme or an evil plan it needs to make sense start to finish and it can't just be oh hey i'm here to thwart thwart the pcs for no reason I know that's tempting, especially when you're DMing more on the fly, but uh, you definitely need to have uh, plans that make sense to their motivations and fulfill their uh, their, their practical needs as well as uh, as provide for an interesting story.
0: That said, of course, sometimes their motivation may actually be that they really want to thwart the PCs. Uh, perhaps uh, some of the most interesting villains are ones who have personal grudges against the heroes uh whether that's because the heroes have done something to them in the past either deliberately or unintentionally or perhaps if they're just disturbed individuals who see the pcs as particularly famous and you know there there are some real life examples of that sort of thing as well so don't think that just because they need to have uh, a plan that fits their motive means that necessarily their plan needs to make sense in the abstract their plan needs to make sense to them based on on their motivation
1: right exactly like in those situations i mean that their plan would make sense from their uh, from their own twisted villainous perspective and it, it, it's important to have that kind of continuity so that uh so that when you get time to discover those plans pcs don't go well why was he doing that because uh, because again that's just going to really hurt your evil schemes uh, and then going back to making sure you have well-defined details for your villains there's a lot of little things you can do to uh, to really give really show off their personalities and motivations one thing you can uh, you can help show that through is their minion quality uh, I know it's a lot of times it's really easy to just go well he's the he has a bunch of orcs that follow him orcs are easy or level one warriors but if you spend a little bit of time to put some effort into making sure his minions are almost, are well, not as memorable as him, but are memorable as a part of him, then, uh, then you'll get a whole lot more mileage out of the villain as a whole. Particularly if he's going to be a long-term villain, uh, and he's going to be employing lesser villains who are, uh, who are, who are full-fledged bad guys in their own right, uh, it can be very important to make sure that those guys have the same kind of quality investment.
0: That's true. A villain's evil organization is, in many ways, an extension of himself. And so an organization that is well-run and has intelligent tactics uh, and, and makes sense and works as an organization is going to indicate a villain who has a, a very logical and, and well-oiled mind and who can who can come up with good plans and effectively run an organization. At the same time, a chaotic, rampaging horde of orcs, for example, uh indicates that perhaps the uh, perhaps the villain in question doesn't care as much about the day-to-day runnings of his little empire and is more interested in say raping and pillaging.
1: The point is uh, his minions really do reflect you know what you're selling with your villain. they really sort of give you insight into the story you're trying to tell and it's important to hit those little notes. Uh, this is particularly important as I said with villains who are going to be around for a while. Uh, speaking of which, if you're going to have villains that are going to be around for a while, make sure you keep uh, keep them fresh every time they do show up. Uh, there's nothing worse than just hitting the same node again and again and again with a uh, w- with a bad guy cackling. You know, Dr. Claw w- from Inspector Gadget was a... Uh, I mean, he's kind of a funny-looking guy with a cool voice, but, I mean, he's he just gets kind of old. And uh, the same sort of thing, you've got to avoid having the same sort of aha I'm here and I built another crypt and you can go and then you'll find out that the princess isn't at the end of the castle Uh, so it's important that you keep your villains fresh uh, throw in some new plans maybe some varied strategies or or even just some new ambiance decor new minions you know just just anything to keep it uh, keep it new keep it exciting Uh, it's very important with long term villains so notably less important with somebody they're going to kill at the end of the cave and be done with um so, uh, speaking of which, personally, I don't really care as much for villains like that, and I think your really good villains probably are going to be more long term. But that's that's not to say that there isn't something to be said for those uh, for the for those quicker villains. They definitely have a lot of place in uh, in adventures.
0: And another important thing to consider when it when it comes to villains, in addition to creating the villain, uh, is is role playing villains and. We're not going to touch as much on that today as as we might have. We're running a little bit short on time. But uh, one one thing that I think it's very important to talk about uh, is that many many of the villains that you will wind up playing as a GM, uh, if you want them to be particularly memorable, memorable and particularly evil, uh, they're going to do some pretty awful things. And you're going to be the one who's deciding that those are getting done. You're going to be the one who announces to the players that Yes, in fact, they're raping this, or murdering that, or lord knows what. Um, So, you should really prepare yourself to be the bad guy for a bit. Just because you do terrible, depraved things to fictional people on behalf of your villain doesn't make you a bad person. Or, at least, that's the sort of thing that I tell myself in order to sleep at night. Um, Along those lines, try to gauge what level of depravity your party is comfortable with, And While you may want to push that boundary just a bit in order to really get them to react to what the villain is doing, don't just go past it, respect that there are some things that they just don't want to be confronted with, and ultimately you don't want to drive them away. Uh, Remember, it is just a game. Uh, It's also tempting and can be highly effective to directly attack the things that your players love in the game. Uh, their NBC family, or the serving girl that they adopted, or what have you. Uh, Be careful not to do this too often though, as it can be hard to get them to develop emotional bonds in the first place, and it only becomes harder the more that they get targeted. Uh,
1: Along those lines though, use sparingly those kinds of tactics can really enforce the evilness of your villain. Uh, which is an important factor that you don't just go for straight shock value. Uh, in terms of his depravity, it should be uh, should be more memorable kinds of things, uh, like those sorts of personal attacks. As long as they're used sparingly enough, so that players don't go, "Oh, he killed the serving girl," just like the last one did in the last campaign or whatever. So, uh, so make sure that your villains are hitting those emotional high notes. Uh, and when you're role-playing your villain, it can be. Uh, I've found it personally helpful. To invest a little bit more time, uh, consider if you were on the other side of the table, and uh, it was just you and your villain against a uh, against a GM running a group of PCs. But but investing him in like he's one of your characters can really uh, can really affect how you play the villain uh, and give him just a little bit more investment than you do to your uh, to your
0: average monsters that the PCs are running up to, particularly in terms of a wall and on that final note we're going to go ahead and move on to our game mastery section where we give you 10 tips for uh, in today's case building a great evil stronghold so the number one tip location 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 Uh, an evil stronghold needs to be in a suitably impressive place the top of a forbidding mountain is largely bottom of the barrel here try looking for real estate in the middle of a lake of lava or at the bottom of the ocean or even flying in the sky Not only will it make it harder to assault, it will be far more memorable and grant the kind of prestige a fledgling evil overlord needs. Number two, speaking of location, you'll want to find a good balance between remoteness and relevance. If your evil lair is too easy to access, you'll have neonate heroes uh, banging down your door all the time, and everyone will be watching you gather your undead armies or whatever it is that you're doing. If it's too far from the action, then heroes won't bother making the long quest out to fight you, and you won't be able to accomplish much, and you'll langu- languish in obscurity and self-imposed exile. Number 3. Guardians. Every evil stronghold needs them, but you can also use them to impress as well as defend. There's a lot to be said for having a captive dragon or similar mighty beast which you sick on any who would dare invade your fortress. There's also a lot to be said for legions of loyal guards, especially if they have impressive and immaculate uniforms and know how to stand at attention and get information. Most likely, neither will stop a determined hero, but they'll certainly make you seem like a cool overlord. Number 4. Whenever possible, it's a good idea to fill your fortress with horrible and malicious traps. That said, don't forget that you and your minions need to live there too. If you're lucky and clever, you may be able to include traps that don't affect you, but will affect your foes. For example, negative energy traps for a lich. Otherwise, you'll likely need other measures to ensure that you don't have to keep cleaning your minions out of the spiked pit trap. Number 5. Think big, especially when it comes to architecture and interior design. The more grand and imposing you can make your stronghold, the better. Lush red carpets, sweeping buttresses and grand arches, golden statues, dozens of looming obsidian gargoyles, giant portraits of yourself everywhere, whatever it takes. You don't need to apply this to every room, of course. The minion quarters, the kitchen, the larder, and the like don't need it. But the main rooms of your stronghold, entry hall, audience chamber, etc., should all be grand and imposing, making visitors feel small and unimportant. Number six, speaking of architecture and design, don't be afraid to put a little bit of yourself into the place either. Your fortress should be an extension of your own evil, and it should be an expression of your dark majesty. Work it into the building itself, or at least the furniture. A necromancer might have a castle made of pure bone, for example, and lighting from lamps containing green flames that are actually captured souls, or something to that effect. Number seven, don't forget to include a dungeon. Even if you don't think you'll need one, trust me, at some point you'll wish you had it. You'll want to make sure it has all the staples too. A shackled corpse or two, and a lot of rats and roaches. If necessary, you may need to import the latter, but a corpse should be easy for an evil overlord to come by. Number eight, towers. Good place to keep maidens. Also, can be used to view oncoming threats from afar and give you early warning of approaching heroes. And it's an excellent way to pour boiling pitch or rain arrows or spells down on those who would dare assault your fortress of doom. Number nine, Mazes are fashionable these days. Include a few guardians, cryptic puzzles, and the like, and you'll have heroes dying on your doorstep by the hundreds. Number ten, and final uh, piece of advice, it used to be fashionable to leave your treasure in chests in the end of hallways, but these days, that's a bit of a faux pas. Instead, build yourself a proper vault in the heart of your stronghold. If possible, make it impossible to get into except by magic. In either case, guards are a must. And now, we're going to go ahead and move on to our Seed to Story, where, if you're a new listener, you won't be aware that we're going to go ahead and roll a die percent right here and consult 100 adventure ideas from the old 3.0 DMG. And then we're going to take the adventure seed that they give us, and over the course of a couple of minutes, we're going to come up with a slightly more fleshed-out adventure idea uh, just to sort of give an idea of, of, you know, what that process looks like. So, without any further ado... We're going to go ahead and make our roll here. And it looks like we got 70. Josh, what does that give us?
1: A kingdom known for its wizards prepares for war.
0: Well, that certainly uh, that certainly does seem interesting. I think the first question to consider here is, are the PCs going to be part of the Wizard Kingdom, or are they going to be defending against the Wizard Kingdom?
1: Well, either way does pose interesting possibilities. Personally, I like uh, I like the wizards are invading where the PCs are defending against them, but that may be a bit safe. You see that a lot in uh, in games and movies where
0: the evil arcane overlords are running in, and the PCs are their only hope to stop them. But uh, you know. still, it might be interesting to consider rather than having the game play out as the evil overlords with their armies are invading. Uh, Perhaps it does say that the adventure is about the wizards preparing for war. Perhaps this is more of a Cold War situation and perhaps the PCs uh, are hired to help look into defensive options to to really shore up their their home country against the tactics that are likely to be involved in a mage-heavy battle. Obviously, you know, normally the, the, the country might, be, they might have walls and be prepared for goblin assaults, but they may simply have no idea how to handle, say, uh, an enemy who can teleport right into the heart of their stronghold, dominate their king, or that sort of thing, and perhaps the PCs have to find some way to help them prepare for that sort of threat. Yes,
1: yeah, so unfortunately, the best way to prepare against that kind of threat is to include a bunch of wizards yourself. Uh, there really isn't a lot you can do to stop that sort of thing without a lot of high-level spells. Keep people from teleporting into your fortress and dominating your king. It really is kind of a tragedy of the uh, the game that like a level 10 wizard could effectively conquer many kingdoms with dominate, person, and invisibility. Uh, in terms of making a more interesting story, however, uh, I do like the idea of a sort of cold war setup where perhaps we have a, a nearby kingdom of wizards preparing for war and a more mundane kingdom which needs to uh, needs to sort of build a more of a deterrent setup than a uh, than a direct defense, perhaps. This means hiring mercenaries, uh, getting the uh, the aid of the local dragons, or uh, or simply poisoning the wizard's watered supply. So uh, so they uh, they they're crippled in that respect.
0: Of course, um, it could also be uh, a, that's an idea, interesting idea about the poison. Actually, uh, perhaps the uh, perhaps the main part of the quest. Uh, like you said, may- maybe the overall arc of the adventure is 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 some way to build up against those wizards. So that could involve seeking out allies, like you said. Might also involve uh, perhaps more specialized anti-magic defenses. Obviously, um, the game's rules in the core rulebook aren't very supportive of of ways to fight magic that don't involve magic. But perhaps the uh, perhaps a, a GM could find uh, could find special uh, special herbs or something that they could use to poison the wizards, not to kill them. But simply to weaken or, or dissolve their magic, perhaps they could. Uh, perhaps if the PCs, uh, perhaps the campaign might even end when the PCs find enough of that herb and uh, and are able to distribute it through the water supply of the entire country, uh, thus uh, crippling their magic reserves without having the nasty side effects of genocide.
1: Yeah, well, definitely uh, something like that could uh, could certainly work, implying a more of a sort of attrition war in a uh, let's not just kill all the wizards fashion Uh, of course uh, if your players are of the low attention span variety most of them when they get to a high enough level are just going to want to start assassinating key wizards which could make for a fun campaign too uh, especially if it involves a lot of dissecting where in the wizards politic you know arcane draconic system government people need to uh, people need to be diminished or defeated and there, there's a room for a lot of sort of
0: spy espionage and diplomacy, and I think this kind of game. Speaking of diplomacy, uh, since they are simply preparing for war, perhaps the uh, perhaps the real crux of the adventure has more to do with diplomacy with the wizards as well, or diplomacy with other nations in forming mutual defense pacts against the wizards. Uh, finally, one thing that we didn't really uh, explore here, but which occurs to me is uh, just because the kingdom that's preparing for war is highly magical doesn't mean that the uh, kingdom the pcs are in isn't also magical and this could turn into a sort of high magic cold war with pc wizards preparing to go off against uh, npc wizards
1: so uh having a look at all of those various and uh only really tangentially related things it seems that that in fact a kingdom of wizards prepares for war is a, a fairly suitable adventure in and of itself determining some uh some minor details about who uh, the major players involved, and then sort of letting the PCs tackle the situation in whatever
0: way sort of appeals best to them might in fact be the best way to handle this one. And now that we've finished that, it's time for our Poll of the Week. We've talked a lot about villains today, and as necromancers, we're kind of experts on the subject. But that doesn't mean we know everything. We'd love to hear about some of the great villains from your own tabletop adventures. Do you have a favorite villain from one of your games? Tell us about him in our forum at www.necromancers-online.com Or you can always send us an email at arigs, that's A-R-I-G-G-S, at necromancers-online.com for me. Or jzaback—that's that's J-Z-A-B-A-C-K, at necromancers-online.com for Josh. And on that note, we're going to go ahead and bid you good day. See you next week. Bye-bye.